Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 176. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and the Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title Looking for the Good Times Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a Dallas songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. This changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Films, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. My Pac-Man book called Pac-Man, the first animated cartoon show based upon a video game, is due out on September 25th, 2022. You can pre-order your copies now at Bear Manor Media or on Amazon. I'm still working on my Mad book, and the Disney and Kremer books are done and will be released eventually. I'm also working on a Warren Kremer article for Alter Ego magazine. 
Plus, I have begun work on a new book called TV Cartoons That Time Forgot. On today's show, we have a bassist and a songwriter from The Love and Spoonful. Here he is, Steve Boone. Uh, this is Mark Arnold of the Fund Ideas Podcast, and today we have a bassist and a songwriter from The Love and Spoonful. And here he is, Steve Boone. How are hey, you? Hey, Mark. <laughs> So anyway, the, you know, I was just interviewing you today uh, because uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Love and Spoonful, but also you were good friends with the Turtles, and Charles Rosney and I are writing a book about the Turtles, and uh, he said you had a few good anecdotes about them. Well, I wouldn't say they were anecdotes as much as uh, we enjoyed their music and their style was very similar to the Love and Spoonful style. And, of course, their producer ultimately became the producer on our last album. The album we did was Everything Playing. Joe Wizard was the producer. Okay. He, he made his, his money on uh, producing hits for the uh, what they called the Philadelphia Sound mm-hmm. in the, in the 19, early 1960s. And uh, when Eric Jacobson got fired... Uh, from producing the Love and Spoonful because he wiped out a vocal track uh, that was one of John Sebastian's favorite vocal tracks. So he he got this ticket to go home, <laughs> and uh, and so then Joe Wizard came in and Joe had a tremendous recommendation. I mean, he was he was one of those producers that really had the magic touch, mm-hmm. and so we fit in really good with him, and he really was able to handle it. This was at a dawn of the recording era because we were the first rock band to record on 16 track wow. uh, tape recorder and uh, Joe Wizard was able to master it along with, with Jerry Esther's help because it was technically too hard for most people to grasp that 16 tracks 8 tracks seemed to be it so we were very lucky that uh, that Joe Wizard was able to navigate that uh type of technology and then make the 16 tracks available to us on that album and we were very grateful for that of course you know joe wizard had some great hits of his own and so mm-hmm. you know, the turtles being one of them and uh and just you know you can see where joe wizard fits into the whole scene uh in uh, pop music of late 1968 Mm-hmm. That's that's where he kind of came to life for the Love and Spoonful, and then the Turtles took off just before that. And we were we were not only friendly with them, but we were very similar style wise from our music. So it was a it was sort of a, a a kind of relationship that was good because it was something we all felt comfortable listening to. And so the Turtles turned out to be a really hot record-producing act that just had that knack for producing hit records. And uh, and as the results show, they really did fabulous mm-hmm. uh, when it came to the top ten. Right. Um, back in the day, did uh, Love and Spoonful ever tour together with the Turtles? or uh, No, we did a couple of... I think we did a couple of standalones, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a tour... The only tour we ever did that was really a tour was with two groups. One was the Beach Boys, and then the other one was uh, uh, the Association. Mm, And so uh, it was at the dawn of the era of of bands 
uh, you know, touring under the umbrella of uh, another producer or something. So it was, it worked out very good for us. Mm -hmm. And um, just curious, did you ever sit in on any Turtle sessions or play on any of their records or anything? No, we did not. And that was not. Not something that we did because the only person I sat in on a record being recorded was Bob Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home album. Okay. Uh, I, I, re- I played bass on four of the cuts on that album, and uh, there's a great deal of controversy as to whether I was the bass player on the ones that got put on the album or not. And uh, it was a fun experience. John Sebastian was friends with Bob Dylan. Mm. And when the Love and Spoonful was first rehearsing our songs out on Long Island in a closed for the winter hotel that a friend of mine was the manager of, got a phone call one night and uh, I answered the phone and uh, the voice asked for John Sebastian. I said, well, John Sebastian's here. Who can I say is calling? (laughs) And he said, Bob Dylan. And I was right ready to go, yeah, right, Bob Dylan is calling me out here on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out it was, he, Bob Dylan was uh, actually uh, looking for John Sebastian to come in. John had sat in on some other things that Bob was doing. And so he asked John to play the bass on a couple of cuts. And when he wasn't satisfied with what John was doing, John said to to Bob, he said, well, this guy here that drove me into New York is an actual bass player. Hmm. So I ended up playing on four songs on the album uh, and uh, very proud of that. I've always been a huge fan of Bob Dylan's and uh, I was very, you know, there was a big controversy over whether I actually played on the album or not. There's this group called Sub Pop mm-hmm. uh, and they claimed that I never did play on the album. And then somebody <laughs> in Subplop Land came up with a pay stub from Columbia Records for me, having been paid for that session. So that kind of ended the conversation that I wasn't playing on the Bob Dylan Bringing It All Back Home album. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah. Well, it was funny, but it was also very real. Right, right. <laughs> now, um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about your career a little bit. Um, I was doing a little research in... Was your first like professional uh, guitar playing or bass playing on the Kingsman, or did you just sit in on those sessions as well? Oh, no, no, no. I played with the Kingsman. Okay. Uh, in 1960, I was in my junior year of high school and had a terrible automobile crash coming home from a bowling alley one night at the end of the year, at the end of the school year. And as a result, I was uh, bedridden. I had paralyzed right leg, and, and I was a mess. And so I had to lie on the sofa for months. And my mom, feeling bad for me, bought me a guitar. Mm-hmm. And my older brother Skip, who had moved up to Long Island from Florida, was coming by every afternoon and showing me a new chord every day that I could learn and play. And then after about four months of that, and my my healing on the broken leg was getting better, they asked me to come out and sit in with the band one night. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out the bass player was retiring from the Air Force. That's where most of the men of the band were Air Force members. Mm-hmm. And uh, and once he said he was retiring, I applied for the full-time bass player job and got it. So mm-hmm. that was how I got started playing bass 
excuse me, on Love and, on the Bob Dylan album. Mm, okay. But I did play on all the Kingsman recordings we did. I was the bass player on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it was a great band. My older brother was in it. Uh, my mentor in in popular music was the saxophone player King Charles mm. was his name, and that's why we were called the Kingsmen. We were King Charles's men, and uh, it was a great band in Long Island. In the summertime, we would be like the hit of the nightclubs, where all the wealthy summerites were coming out to the Hamptons. And they would uh, party at these various nightclubs where the Kingsmen would play. And so we had a great following. We were just had a great audience, great following. And it was a very, very uh, good education for me as a bass player. Mm -hmm. Now, is, is that where you um, met the other members of Love and Spoonful? Or, uh, no, actually, what, ha what happened was in the summer of 1964, uh, my best friend and I were talking one day, and we said, you know, we were so interested in the Mercy Beat music of the Beatles and all the stuff that was coming out of London. We said, let's go to Europe in the fall of 1964 and buy motorcycles and ride all around, but then try to track down this new sound that's coming across the ocean from uh, from England. <laughs> and so we did that. We flew over to uh, England and... Uh, you know, got all settled in, bought two motorcycles, had a great time touring. And actually, one of the funniest things, our first night we were in Denmark, and uh, the band was playing in this nightclub, and we were having a beer, me and my buddy, and I was talking to one of the band's girlfriends who were standing next to the bandstand, and I said, how do they know these words so well? Because they were, they were doing the English songs in perfect English. There was no accent. It was like just like perfect, like it was the English people singing the songs. And I, she said, oh, they don't know how to speak English. They don't know one word of English. They just learn every song word for word. Wow. And they, <laughs> that kind of amazed me, but I thought it was very cool also. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that was neat. Mm -hmm. So then how did you meet Joe, John, and, and Oh, Val? right. Val. And, and then <laughs> after three months in Europe, we were running out of money. We were in Spain, and we decided to ship our motorcycles back to the States. So we stopped in Barcelona, Spain, and uh, shipped the motorcycles back, and then spent a couple of weeks partying in this little town just south of Barcelona on the, uh, on the coast. And it was just fabulous. We had the greatest time. We met these two girls from Canada that were doing the same thing. We were just kind of getting around and, and having a ball. So we just had a blast. And then I arrived back in New York in December of 1964. And I'm out of my mother's house on Long Island. And the phone rings. And it's somebody saying, you know, your motorcycle was ready for pickup come into New York and pick it up. So I called my brother Skip, who was, they were the first rock band to play in Greenwich Village. Hmm. They, had a, they had a band called The Sellouts, and Joe Butler, who became the Spoonfuls drummer, was in that band. And uh, they had a record contract with Herbie Cohen, who managed a lot of artists at that time. Hmm. And so the, the band was doing real good, and uh, Love and Spoonful, I got a call from my brother saying, when you come in, bring your bass guitar with you. 
Mm. And I said, Skip, why do you want me to bring my bass guitar in? I'm not planning to play. I'm going back to college in a week. He said, just bring it anyway. What do you got to lose? So I did. I packed it up in my car. Not my car. I took the train in because I had to drive the motorcycle back. <laughs> and uh, got to his apartment in Greenwich Village. And he said, look it. Go and take your bass and walk over to down to the Greenwich Village uh, Main Street, which is called McDougal Street. Mm-hmm. And there will be uh, a band playing there. And so... I walked into this closed for the afternoon coffee house, but there wasn't a band playing there. It was two guys with electric guitars, long hair, electric guitars, and they were playing all this loud, loud stuff on this tiny little amplifier. <laughs> but I fit right in with them. I fit right in. I knew all the songs that they were playing, Chuck Berry songs, Elvis songs, Jerry Lee Lewis songs. I knew all the songs that they wanted to play. And those two guys that I met were John Sebastian and Zalianowski. Wow. <laughs> and, and after that session, we agreed to meet up after New Year's and start this band up that was going to be uh, a growth from folk music to putting in a rock beat and a bass player and uh, some new songs originally written. And so that was how the band started with uh, having this great jam session in the club that eventually became a very famous club called the Cafe Bazaar. But that's where the Love and Spoonful started its career. And we just played for like three hours on on just just the guitars and bass, no drums, no anything else. And we had this great Zam session. People were already gathering outside and looking in the door like, what's going on in there and all that stuff. So from that point on, we uh, got a drummer, not Joe Butler, because he was already committed to the king, to the sellouts. They had a contract with Herbie Cohen, hmm. who managed, he managed uh, a lot of famous uh, people. So anyway, uh, that was when the band started up. We didn't have Joe Butler because he didn't want to, he didn't think we were going to be able to get a record deal. Mm. And he had, he had one because the band already had made an offer on a record deal. And so he decided to stay with it. And this fellow named Jan Buechner, who was the, he was the night winter operator of this hotel that was closed for the winter. And he was a drummer from Florida who had played with my brother in St. Augustine when they lived down there. So he became our drummer for the first couple of months of the band. And he was a great drummer, but he really, he was he was like six or seven years older than us. <laughs> and he just, he kind of didn't fit in looks-wise. And uh, so it didn't work out for him being in the band. But what did work out was we learned a whole bunch of songs that were John's originals and then some new songs that were just coming online. Mm-hmm. And so by the time that we had finished having these jam sessions, we were ready to go out and try to get a record deal. We just were playing good. We liked the way it sounded. And uh, the combination of folk songs and rock beat really went over well with the audiences that were listening outside as we rehearsed. So really it was the starting point of the Love and Spoonful, but it was because of the fact that we didn't have the whole band together when we started out. We kind of worked with a part-time drummer, and then the other 
two guys filled in on guitars and I played bass and it was it was easy to see that this band was going to be successful because we sounded so good together without any rehearsal. We just mm. said, well, key it's in, play the song, and it sounded great. So we were real happy with how it was. And uh, I think the Turtles kind of started the same way, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, from what I know about them anyway, they were, you know, doing very well and uh, got really rehearsed up and were good and ready to go. And so... I think we were kind of traveling similar paths, and uh, it was obvious that that kind of music was ready to catch on with the public. So right. I think the, the Turtles and the Scoople had a somewhat of a identical path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people associate the Scoople with the Turtles. Mm-hmm. Now, did you hang out with Howard and Mark and the others back in the day? <laughs> we didn't hang out. You know, hanging out was... Hanging out was something you did with your girlfriend. Right. <laughs> uh, we just didn't, it wasn't hanging out time. We were, by the time we got started doing dates, we had barely enough time to brush our teeth, go to bed, and get up and do the next one. It was just, yeah. it, it never let up from, a, like, let's just say the 1st of March, 1965, until a year later when we had our first hit record out. Mm-hmm. And we were just doing nonstop rehearsals, gigs, new songs coming along, new instruments being played like the auto harp and some of the instruments that John played like the marine band harmonica. Mm-hmm. So it was very obvious that we had hooked on to a, a new style of music and it was sort of our style that the public liked it. So we were starting to attract an audience already and we still didn't even have the band really full cooking yet. Mm-hmm. So it was very obvious from the beginning that this band was probably going to do well. <laughs> so when did you finally get Joe to commit to it? <laughs> well, let's say it was February 1965 when we made the decision to not go with the drummer that I told you about, Jan Buechner, and go mm-hmm. with with Joe Butler because he was now starting to see how good the band was. Mm-hmm. And his record deal was getting bogged down in, in BS. And so he kind of came to us and said, look, if I leave the band, can I join this band? And we mm-hmm. said, sure. I knew how good he was. And uh, I, like I said, I played with him for years. So I really knew that he would fit in good. And so once Joe joined, excuse me, once Joe joined us, mm-hmm. it was very obvious it was going to be soon that we were going to be on television. Mm-hmm. Now, was the the first label uh, you uh, worked with was the Kama Sutra, or did you try out at other labels before that? No, we actually there was a label. It was a folk label, uh, and they wanted to sign us very badly, but we we didn't think they had the juice <laughs> to get songs on the radio. Mm. You know, getting a forty five on the radio was not something for a folk music record company to do. Right. They didn't on the radio so we were very careful who we selected and uh and it turned out that that partnership worked out really good and uh the band started cooking almost from the Mm get-go and uh it was like well it was just like a like meant to be kind of thing everybody was like man this thing is working out real good and you know we did some gigs we worked around a little bit, got familiar. Then we went to this record company 
and they uh, they said they would front us some money if we cut three cuts for this album they were putting out with Eric Clapton and uh, I forget the other artists that were on there. Paul Butterfield, Paul Butterfield mm. Band, and Eric Clapton. They had, and so this album uh, got put together with the three groups: the the uh, Paul Butterfield and the the Loving Spoonful. And the, the Turtles weren't part of this. This was a different thing. And so mm. it kind of became a, a situation where we knew they couldn't get records on the uh, radio, but we said they've been so good in helping us get amplifiers and stuff like that that we agreed to record four songs that got on the everything, not everything playing. It's What's Shaken was the name of the album. <laughs> uh, and the name of the record company escaping me right this minute. Well, you caught me on a bad day in terms of memory. Uh, but anyway, it was, a folk <laughs> label. it was a folk label, and they were very, very, uh, not pushy, but they really wanted us to be on their label. But we just didn't think they could get the job done because they were considered to be a folk label, which didn't have a whole lot of juice as a record company that could get songs on the radio in those days am radio was king right and if you wanted to make a, a name for yourself you had to get on am radio mm -hmm. and so we knew that the band not the band that the record company that was called kama sutra was some real diehard uh gangsters i guess you might say <laughs> But, you know, that's like a tough business. I wasn't surprised at all that they were like gangster types. And so they they maneuvered. They did what they had to do. We got, you know, songs on the radio. And the next thing you know, we were in California playing at a nightclub out there in San Francisco. And uh, the airport, we got picked up at the airport by our record company, PR Man. And the first thing we did when we got in the Cadillac convertible to drive into town was turn on the radio and Do You Believe in Magic was playing. Wow. <laughs> I think they had it planned personally because the, <laughs> the disc jockey, uh, he, it was his show. And so I think he just kind of timed it out with the, with the airport pickup and the bands in the car. Let's play, you know, do you believe in magic on the radio? And it was great. We loved it. We first heard the song and played it and it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks, looks like I'm kind of looking at it as well. You, it looks like Electra Records was the one that you were, uh, that was really, yeah. That's it, exactly. Electra okay. Records. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were a good label. They had a great deal of, uh, uh, they were really straight up good people. They weren't crooks or anything. They were really doing the right thing. But they just didn't have the juice to get records on the top 40 radio. Right. It's funny and that so it was, just a couple of years later, that kind of all changed with like the Doors and <laughs> groups like that. But you know, well, you know, Paul Rothschild, who was the producer on uh, Electra Records, mm -hmm. was a big friend of John Sebastian's. They wanted to sign the Love and Spoonful, but we knew they didn't have the juice to get a yeah. record on the radio. So Paul Rothschild then went out and found the Doors. Yeah. And of course, the rest is history. So right. they did real good. They come through. But yeah. the, the album that we played four songs on called What's Shaken mm -hmm. is kind of like a classic album. It's well regarded in the uh, field of uh, 
early days of folk rock. Right. But I, I totally agree with you. You know, I, I, if I was in the same situation, it'd be hard to go with Electra at that time because it was a different label. I, I knew, I, I've, I've read the artists or listened to the artists that have been on the label, and yeah, it's very folky, but... You know, who who heard of Electra before, say, like, The Doors and Love and the groups that they got later? And, of course, way later, like, The Cars and things like that, you know? So the, Right, yeah. and it was later, so if yeah. it hadn't been real time, it wouldn't have happened. Right, exactly. So it yeah. was just very cool, and, you know, uh, people knew people, so Bob Cavell, our manager, and Eric Jacobson, our producer, you know, they knew people at Electra, so we... Mm-hmm. We worked in a very positive environment with them, and I was glad we did because it was a highly regarded label, and, you know, people saw that we were putting music out on Electra, and they gave us credit for it. Right. Um, I do know, of course, in the history of Love and Spoonful, eventually Zal went off to go solo and things like that, and then Jerry Esther was brought in. Now, I interviewed Jerry Esther, and he said he actually did play with you guys on the earlier material as well. Is that correct? That's right. He played okay. piano on Do You Believe in Magic? Okay. So. And he, was, he also sat in as a musical director. Jerry's very talented, not just as a performer, but also as a producer and a writer. And he also has uh, skills at uh, orchestration and stuff like that. Very, very talented and very handy in the studio. So, yeah, yeah. You know, Jerry was really a welcome addition to the band when he joined up. Okay, so it wasn't that far-fetched, you know, and that's what I asked him originally. It's like, where did you come from out of the blue? And he goes, no, I was already working with them. And I go, okay. Yeah, and you know, in those days, in the early days, in early 1965, mm-hmm. it was kind of like a club. And the people that were in it all went on to have successful careers mm-hmm. in the record business. But they started out just as like a club of guys that belonged to this group of musicians that worked in the nightclubs in Greenwich Village and the nightclubs out in Los Angeles and up in San Francisco. The uh, Grateful Dead members saw us perform at a gig at the Count House. I think the Turtles might have been there for that gig, too. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. And yeah. th- that's when they decided to become a folk band, Grateful Dead. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, there was a lot of things happening in 1965, and it was very positive for the for the music scene, and, and I was really glad that we were right there at the right time in the right place. Mm-hmm. Now, you may or may not know this, but uh, Jerry eventually went on to produce the Turtles' final album, which actually wasn't released. You know, it was going to be called Shell Shock, and it was supposed to come out in 1970, but then the Turtles and White Whale disintegrated around that time. <laughs> right, well, just to put another wrench on this nut, Jerry Esther's my father-in-law. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, we're, yeah, we're very close. Uh, and in, in fact, right now, as we speak, we're working on new songs that I come up with a, a basic music bed and send it to him, and then he puts in his skills in arranging and adds stuff to it to make it, you know, more progressive. And so it's really good. We're really getting some good stuff down. Very good. Um, now, another commonality, I just, I'm remembering that interview, and I wrote it down, and then I read this. Were both of you, uh, you and Jerry, turned down for the monkeys? No, we turned them down. Oh. <laughs> what happened was, we got, well, Jerry was different. He wanted, he advertised, he answered the ad 
Mm. He wanted to be in the Monkees, but we already had a hit record with You Believe in Magic, and right. our manager said, come listen to these guys, they've got a proposal. So we listened to them, and they said, hey, we've got this TV show we're going to do, and it features a band we're going to call the Monkees, and it's going to be kind of like Hard Day's Night. And, uh, and so we said, we turned them down, and for the reason that I think were very good reasons. We didn't think that trying to copy the Beatles was a good way to go for original music bands. So we just said, mm-hmm. thank you, but no thank you. We'll try to get it on our own. Mm-hmm. But they did want us to be, you know, the band that would take the place of, uh, of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't going to happen, obviously. Now, to, according to your memory, did, uh, did they want you to remain the love and spoonful or did they want that you to was, change no, the name to the monkeys? Right? That was the deal breaker. Once they said you got to change your name, we said no way, Jose. Wow. We've already got a name. We've already been interviewed on TV, and we've already been played on the radio as the Love and Spoonful. We're not going to take and change our name. Not happening. I so that's when we yeah. turned them. We we're not going to interest it. And I thought it was going to be a success. I for sure it was going to be a success, but. But we, you know, you gotta stick with what you got, and we were very pleased with it. So we decided just to say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they wouldn't let you keep your same name. Like, you know, there's that other show, Happening '68 or whatever, that had Paul Revere and the Raiders, and they let them be Paul Revere and the Raiders. They didn't change their name. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, they wanted, you know, they wanted us to change the name, but they also wanted us to change our style of music, and that mm. was not going to fly because. We'd already had a hit with Magic, and we had you didn't have to be so nice coming up, ready to go on the charts, and it did real well. It made top ten too. Right. So I think we made a right decision there. But you know, you never know in show business. Sometimes you yeah. take what you got and you run with it. Other times you just kind of you know suck wind. Yeah, I still think you did the wisest choice because you know uh, hey, I do too. If you're already uh, successful, why 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 mess with it? You know? <laughs> no, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, it's very easy to kind of say, "Well, you were just lucky." Yes, we were lucky, but we also knew we had a good thing, and we didn't want to give up on it uh, without some kind of good reason to give up on it. Right. And it wasn't a good reason. I, you know, what if the monkeys had flopped? If it hadn't been a hit, then we would have given up our name. And our, you know, our reputation as the band that played Do You Believe in Magic. Right. And do you, and you didn't have to be so nice with getting ready to come out and be a hit. So it was a decision we made that I very much agreed with. Yeah. And of course you had other hits later, Daydream and uh, Love in the C- Summer in the City, excuse me, you know, and things like that. So yeah. Make Up Your Mind yeah. and then Summer in the City and then Nashville Cats. You know, we had nine Top ten songs in a row that came out from us. Nine in a row, top ten. Wow. <laughs> and I even know some lesser-known ones that are still good, you know. It's like, you know, so you had quite a long, good, solid run there. So yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I, like I said, I feel very fortunate to have had the career I've had. Mm-hmm. Now, um... You kind of parallel the Turtles again because you kind of ran in tandem as far as you started, you know, six, professionally about 1965 with Love and Spoonful, and then it kind of ended around 6970. And so the Turtles, was that just kind of the nature of how music was changing? Because, you know, it seemed like early on you're talking about uh, getting on AM radio, but by the end it seems like FM was starting to take over. 
Is that not correct? Well, that's, that's exactly what was happening. And, and, you know, the other thing was that uh, Jerry, I mean, Zali, I don't know if you know about the bus, the marijuana bus that happened to the band. Have you ever heard about that? I think so, yeah. But you can talk about well, it. Well, it, it was really way overamped. But what it was is we got stopped driving a rental car with a, a bag of weed that Zolly put under the front seat. <laughs> and they found it. And they were because Zolly was a Canadian citizen, they were going, well, he's going to leave the country and never be able to come back in unless you cooperate with us. Hmm. And we weren't interested in doing that at all. But we did what we had to do, and it was important that Sally stay in the band. But he, I think it really affected him in terms of how he perceived the music he was playing. So it just got a, a personality thing going, and he was starting to get rebellious because of all the focus of that bust. And you know, we got articles in Rolling Stone saying we were finks and all that. And it was just <laughs> terrible. But the only reason we even agreed to do it, and all we did was we didn't go out and buy weed or anything. We just introduced our road manager to a, a guy that was working for the police department. That's all we did. And, and somehow it got all out of hand. And so it really was bad, 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 bad. <laughs> Uh, and so Zali was acting out. He kept saying he didn't want to play the kind of singer-songwriter music that John Sebastian was coming up with. And he wanted to play more of the hard rock that he did when we first started out. Mm -hmm. And so because we weren't heading in that direction, I think he was like going, well, what am I doing here? Because I wanted to play more, you know, more rock-oriented music, not soft singer-songwriter music. So he kind of made acted out a little bit, and it, and one night on the Ed Sullivan show, he got in front of the camera and kind of made John Sebastian look funny with acting out on television, and John didn't <laughs> like it one bit, and yeah. so you know it was a it was a shame because those guys were like blood brothers, and it was just a shame to see it kind of fall apart like that. But that was you know part of the deal. And uh, it all worked out in the end, you know, and, and everybody's, the guy that, you know, got arrested, he was really, he didn't have any, dis he didn't go to jail or anything, he had to pay a fine, which we paid, and so there was no lasting hangover to it, but then when some of the early Rolling Stone writers got wind of it, they made a big deal out of it, which it didn't need to be, there was no need for a big deal, it was a small deal, but you know, that's the way things work sometimes. So, mm -hmm. so what kind of broke up the Love and Spoonful in the first place? Was it Sebastian appearing at Woodstock, or is it long before that? Oh, long before that. Okay. It was It was that TV show, that Sullivan show, where okay. Zolly put, he had, a, he had a little rubber thing that hung off the end of his guitar, kind of like a meme, a little kind of tortoise thing or something. Anyway, and he bangled it, dangled it in front of the camera when John was singing this love song to his new girlfriend. And, and of course, John didn't like that. And mm -hmm. manager knew it wasn't going to be good. So in the end, it was just like, you know, we sort of decided to go. Zowie decided to leave the band. I was the only one that voted for him to stay. John and Joe both voted for him <laughs> to leave. Well, I knew the circumstances because, you know, I was there that night. And, yeah. uh, and it was not something we should have broken the band up for. But it's like when you only got one vote, you only got one vote. So yeah. 
That's that's too bad. And you know, in the end, it worked out when we got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We did a, a great show, although John's voice was already starting to crack a little bit, and so. But the, the the energy of the performances we did for the Hall of Fame induction was right up there, mm-hmm. top of the shelf. So, mm-hmm. so now you, anyway. you did reunite a couple times before that. Um, the two that they always talk about is a uh, co- uh, show at the Concord Hotel, the Catskills in 79, and then more importantly, the Paul Simon film, One Trick Pony. Um, how did that come about, or those reunions come about like that? Well, Paul Simon is a folky, and yeah. you know Greenwich Village folky, and so everybody knew him. And uh, he, I think, probably shared a, a manager with us because they seem to have similar uh, management people running their operation. And I think it got suggested that why don't you do this movie, uh, be in the Paul Simon's movie? But it turns out the movie was terrible. <laughs> it wasn't a well. It wasn't. It yeah. was poorly written, and it didn't have any mojo at all. Yeah. So it wasn't successful. But the good news was is that the band got back together again, and we kicked ass. Yeah. We sounded so good at that show at the Catskills. I think it was the Concord. I can't remember now. Yeah. For sure. Concord Hotel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was just a tremendous show, and the audience loved it. So. It was sort of the end of the Love and Spoonful, but we went out on a high note, and I was very glad we did, so that mm-hmm. was that. Now, when did you start touring as, like, uh, a nostalgia act, as it were? You know, was that... Right. Like, I, I hate that I know, I... I, I I'm sorry, but I, I was trying to think of a delicate way to present it. What would you call it? I'll give it. <laughs> well, what we do call it is is that because it's not the Love and Spoonful, it's it's the band that has the name, the equal rights to use the name. Right. So we call it a salute rather salute. than a tribute. Okay. And I think that that kind of gives it a little edge that tribute band doesn't I don't like that term tribute band it's sort of like what it is and the reason I don't like it is that they work tribute bands work for significantly less than what the original band did and so they're out of work because the tribute bands are taking the jobs at mm-hmm. lower prices so mm. yeah it kind of turns me off because mm. that's the byproduct mm-hmm. you know I gotta I gotta start wrapping this up because okay. I'm in the middle of cr- cooking dinner tonight okay. so yeah you give me some good information I guess to to wrap it up um uh, are you, after all this pandemic, are you still touring again, uh, finally, after a while? We are, but it's very limited right now. My partner in the band that owns the name, Joe Butler, mm-hmm. is very paranoid about going out on stage or mm-hmm. flying on airplanes. So he's been real reluctant to commit to it. But we do have some dates booked. Uh, there's a real nice cruise that's going to be coming next year. We hope that we can do that cruise so I'm hoping to, that the band can get back to work, and, and it sounds great. So that's what I'm hoping for is that okay. we get back to work and 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 pay attention to being safe with the COVID. Okay. Well, hopefully by like next summer, of course, uh, for sure, this should be over and done. You know. Well, we, we've got this plan. I think it's great. I think it can really catch fire. We want to go in. And uh, Mike has put together a band that's first-class Chicago musicians. And halfway through the show, I'm going to come in as a guest 
star that's mm. going to tell the audience how these songs got developed. Mm. And it's going to be kind of like an overseer kind of thing. And I think it's going to be really good if one, once we really develop the dialogue and how it's going to sound when it's going forward. But uh, that's my plan, and that's what we're shooting for is getting this – you know, we've got dates being booked. People are wanting to book the band, so it's not Good. like there's no dates out there. It's just we I can't get my partner to get <laughs> motivated. Well, and John doesn't want to go out anymore. I just talked with John last yeah. night. He doesn't want to go out anymore. He's, you know, he's retired. Not retired, because he's still making music, and <laughs> he and I are working on some songs together, yeah. so... Uh, it's always going to be music first yeah. in the Love and Spoonful catalog, but uh, and, but right now, yeah, it's kind of a little different in terms of how we're looking at going forward. And would you work with Jerry again, or um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. he he got COVID, and his yeah. his uh, you you interviewed him, so you probably know this that he's had issues with his breathing and, yes. and the COVID. You know. It's, kind of limited him so yeah. hopefully he'll be fine but yes of course i would love to work with jerry again very good okay well i'll let you go but one last thing um i always like people to plug whatever they have uh going on you promoted the concerts here um you wrote a book in 2014 called hotter than a match head can how can people get a hold of that that's i'm so glad you asked because it's really been well received the book has done very very well and the best way to get it is to go to Amazon. But if you want me <laughs> to autograph it personally and any custom inscription, go to steveboone.net. And on that opening home page, there's a little buy button for the book that will come directly to my inbox. And then any you know, I contact people by email saying, if you want a custom inscription, let me know and I'll put it in there. So that's worked well in the past. That's what we do. So, yeah, Hotter Than a Match Head is available at either steveboone.net or Amazon. Very cool. Okay, well, I don't want to keep you too long, and I appreciate your time. And I want to thank Charles Rosene for introducing me to you. And uh, that pretty much wraps up another Fun Ideas podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Steve Boone, for being my special guest. This episode is also available on YouTube. Episode number 177 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas Podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you, and good night.